Well, I'm pretty sure considering the weather outside tonight, you all get instant tickets to heaven for being here. Don't try and cash those tickets, by the way. (laughs) Pretty amazing. I want you to um, be praying, if you would, about services tomorrow, because I know that there's many people that intend to be at church tomorrow, but they may let the weather keep them away. So let's pray that in spite of the weather, that God will bring people out. So let me put a verse on the screen for you. We're going to, by the way, if you uh, would take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2, you're going to be where we're going to be primarily tonight. But I'm going to start off with a different passage. So while you're looking for Philippians chapter 2, look up on the screen at 1 Timothy 1.15. It says this, It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Something missing, isn't there? Students of the Bible, do you know what the next part is? It's kind of incomplete, isn't it? It's a good Christmas verse, right? Jesus came into the world. It's trustworthy. It's a faithful statement. Christ Jesus came into the world. Go ahead and shout it out if you think you know what's missing. To save sinners, exactly. 1 Timothy 1.15 It is a trustworthy statement. Deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Most people stop right there. The world knows that in a few days we're going to celebrate Christmas. And they remember that He came into the world, but they forget the why. To save sinners. That's why we can stand here and sing, He made all things possible. Even when it feels like my heart is breaking, even when it feels like I'm in despair, all things are possible because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul went on to say, of whom I am the chief. Do you remember that part? He went on to say, I'm the worst. Well, we might all want to say that. We're the worst. Here's the truth in church. The frequency with which this is mentioned, this verse right here, causes us to be a little bored. People hear that statement and they kind of tune it out. And it begins being heard without emotion. I assure you, when you consider the magnitude of what we're about to look at in Philippians chapter 2 tonight, as you ponder what's being said there, it's going to give you a new reason to celebrate Christmas. A a new purpose. So my goal is to help you with the Christmas spirit. Okay, Are you struggling with a little bit of the Christmas spirit tonight? Are you struggling getting yourself there? Some people are. Talked to some people today who said, "I'm, I'm just really not that into it. Well, I think there's a, there's a new way of looking at it tonight. So here's the truth. The, the king did step onto the stage of human history. That's what that verse affirms. The king of the universe stepped onto the stage of human history. But here's what we don't often ask ourselves. What was going on behind the stage? If you could step behind the veil and see what was going on in heaven before he stepped onto the stage of human history... What would that look like to know what God was doing to prepare things? See, this is the part we know, Hebrews 9. It says, in God's plan, at the consummation of the ages, He has been manifested. That's the part we know from the earthly view. Consummation of the ages came together, God's plan. He put the wheels of this amazing grace in motion. And we have the earthly view. But for this moment to unfold... 
There had to be something that was going on in heaven in order for it to happen on earth. There had to be some kind of a prior action. So we're told that it happened, that the decision was made even before the foundation of the world. Look with me on the screen. Ephesians 1, verse 4, it says this, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That means the plan was in place before He called the Rocky Mountains into existence, before He carved Lake Michigan, before God named the stars, the incarnation was planned. The miracle of miracles, what the Bible indicates is the jewel, it's sparkling brighter than anything else, this extraordinarily profound action of God. And I guarantee you, if you can get your mind around this tonight in Philippians chapter 2, you're going to have a happy Christmas. Happy, happy, happy. It'll be a reason to celebrate. It really will. That the king would surrender all that he has. That God would become man. Almost sounds preposterous, doesn't it? It's just too good to be true. For the angels, it was actually incomprehensible. We'll get into that in a few minutes. Let me take you to Philippians chapter 2. In verse 5, we start out with this. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And the mind is phroneo. It's the Greek word phroneo, and it means attitude. So have this attitude. Phroneo means um, you're disposed in a certain direction. So you're, you're thinking specifically this way. So this mind that was in Christ, he's thinking this way. We're told that we're supposed to have this attitude in ourselves also. So whatever you're about to see, everything that you watch Jesus do in Philippians chapter 2 means that we're supposed to have the same focus that Jesus had. So what's this focus? Well, this is all this setup in order to help us grasp God's plan that the highest became the lowest, born into the poorest family, the humblest of places. So he starts at the very top with verse 6. And Paul wants us to grasp this. He says in verse 6, "...who though he was in the form of God..." Now, I put the English Standard Version up there and I put the New American Standard Version up there so you would see both. Not all the way through the passage, just verse 6 because what the English Standard Version leaves out is the word existed. It's in there in the Greek text. So the NASB picked it up. It says, who although he existed in the form of God. So here's a truth that I found to be hmm, uh, revolutionary for many people. And I've talked to people over the years, especially since we've launched New Hope, who never, ever in their life heard this before, that Jesus existed before Christmas Day. That Jesus existed for all eternity. The truth is, He existed as God. Micah 5.2, see this on the screen. Let me really emphasize this. It says, His goings forth are from long ago. Jesus, from the days of eternity... So he existed. And here's the Greek word. you got seven Greek words tonight. They're going to go really fast because this is the third one already. And this is the word huparko. It's in your notes tonight. Existed is the word huparko. And it means the continuous of a previous state of existence. Something that was already in place. So by his very nature, Jesus is eternally God. It's the essence of who he is. And it's absolutely unalterable. Matter of fact, this is the way Dr. Barclay summed it up. He says this word huparko really means this, that part of a person which in any circumstance remains the same. I'll help you understand that in just a little bit. I'll flesh it out for you. So here's what John 1.1 says. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. So Jesus Christ, understand this, eternally existed as God. Life didn't begin on Christmas Day for Him. And so verse 6 goes on to say, in the form of God. He existed in the form of God. Now form is the word morphe. Here's another Greek word for you. It means an outward manifestation of an inward reality. So here's what morphe is for you. If you I'll help you understand this. Um, morphe for a human is um, the essence of humanity. It means it never changes. So think, think this way. What is true of a baby is true of a child, is true of a young boy, is true of a young man, is true of a middle-aged man, is true of an old man. In other words, all the way through that same thread is woven, each of those stages, there's still a human. So when you have morphe, the morphe of humanity is from baby to old man, the humanness never changes. So for Jesus, the form of God, the word morphe, the essence of God never changed for him. He eternally existed as God in the form of God. So that's why Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. So I really want you to get this down. That's why I'm spending time on this. Understand, before the incarnation, Jesus preexisted as God, equal with God the Father in every way. So Jesus always has been, always will be, forever God. That's why Hebrews 13.8 says the same yesterday, today, and forever. It was very important that the early church understood that. So Hebrews 1.3 also says this, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Absolutely indescribable is what's going through my mind as I look through Philippians 2.7 that this one who put the stars in the sky the one who told lightning bolts where they're supposed to go is the one who's surrendering everything that he knew to become what we know, the baby in the manger. And this is what set the incarnation in motion. So what you have in your notes tonight is eight steps by which Jesus stepped off from the throne in heaven and moving towards the stage of humanity when the screen was peeled back and Jesus stepped through into the manger as a baby... These eight steps had to take place, this incarnation. And what I think of, and when I think of the incarnation is absolute profound humiliation. I think you would agree with me on this point. If you're God, to change in any degree whatsoever, to lose any essence of what you are would require a descent, Correct? Do you agree with me on that statement? If you're going to change in any form whatsoever, if you are God on throne, always dwelt in eternity, to change in any way would have to be a descent, even if it's only for 33 years. So here's what John MacArthur said about this. In a way that is far beyond human comprehension, the Creator took on the form of the created, the infinite became finite. So let's look at these eight steps down towards Christmas through Philippians 2. In your notes, you're going to see them on the screen as well. This is the first one. It comes from verse 6. Verse 6 says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So here's step one, which absolutely boggles my mind. 
He did not regard the equality that he had with God, that he had equality with God. That's the amazing part. So the word equality is a word that you're very familiar with in the, in the Greek language uh, because we use it in the English language if you went through math class. You're familiar with an isosceles triangle? It comes from the word isos. So you see it up on the screen, this word isos, it means the exact equivalent. So when it, we're told in step one that he did not regard the isos with God, an isos, isosceles triangle means it's got equal sides. Every side is equal. Well, the same is true with Jesus. Equal to God, the isos of God in every degree. So from this high position, the first step down is that he didn't regard that he was absolutely exactly like God, something to be grasped. Well, he fully existed as God, and he's refusing to hold on to his rights. But do you know that Jesus never denied that he was equal with God? Even though he didn't regard it as something to be grasped, he didn't deny it. He didn't deny his deity. Rather, he acknowledges that he's one with the Father. Look with me on the screen. You'll remember this passage when we went to the book of John. John 10.30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Therefore, the Jews picked up stones. Now, the Jews were always picking up stones when Jesus was making statements like that. So Jesus sees them pick up stones from the ground, and he says, what reason are you going to stone me? Why, why would you do this? Why do you want to murder me? Look at their response with me on the screen at verse 33. The Jews answered him, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. See, there was no confusion on the part of the Jews. They absolutely understood what he was saying. So Paul's saying this equality with God in verse 6, he didn't consider it something to be grasped. Now, this Greek word is not in your notes this evening. It's the word harpagmos. And harpagmos means something held onto, not something that you're reaching out to take hold of, but rather something that you already possess. So if a mother is holding her baby in her arms, she's not reaching out to possess it. It's already in her arms. She's holding it. That's the concept of the word harpagmos. Jesus already holds equality with God. He already possesses it. This is a critical distinction. It means he wasn't aspiring to be God. It means he already is God, and he's not holding on to it. So verse 7 says this, But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is where we come into the Christmas part of it. So in, in the NASB it says he emptied himself. The, uh, the ESV says he just made himself nothing. This is a supreme theological declaration. He's refusing to seize or keep his privilege of the position that he has in heaven. So step two is this. He emptied himself. And this is a mind-boggling step as well. It's the word kanuo, to completely empty. So here's what it means. Kanuo, to make empty or to abase of no reputation void. So you, you can picture in your mind someone taking a vase full of water, picking it up and dumping it out. All the contents of it are gone, but that would be an incomplete picture because what Jesus did was to make himself completely neutral as far as some of his attributes. I'm going to show you that in just a moment. So every advantage, everything that he knew as God on the throne in heaven, he refuses to assert any of that right. So put your mind around this. The one who's created everything has surrendered everything. So note this, Jesus emptied himself only of his privilege of deity. 
Not of his deity. He didn't stop being God. He can't stop being God or he couldn't have died for my sins. He couldn't have died for your sins if he stopped being God. Had he stopped being God, which is impossible, he could not have died for you. So he's emptied himself. Now, I want to show you the five ways he emptied himself. If you're going to write in your notes this evening, this is the time to write in your notes because this part is not in your notes. There's five ways that he emptied himself. Here's the very first one. He emptied himself of his heavenly glory. Now, put your mind around this. Before the arrest, Jesus lifted his eyes up to heaven. He's in the garden, and the soldiers are coming to arrest him. They're on their way. And we're told that he lifts his eyes up to heaven and he says this in John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he had the glory of heaven. He gave up the glory of heaven. And he's telling God the Father, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I would like you to glorify me again the way that I was glorified before. What does that mean that he gave up? If you were here during the study of the book of Revelation, you understand the angels falling down before the throne. The splendor of God's throne. The holy city. The gates. The walls. The mansions. The palace of God. The presence of God. So he, he surrendered the worship of the angels in heaven. He gave up the brilliance of everything that he knew. Here, here's the next thing he gave up. The second thing is his independent authority. Within the Trinity, there's perfect agreement on everything. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship with each other. And yet he surrendered this. Look with me on the screen, John 5.30. Jesus said while here on earth, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Think about the night of the arrest. The, the guards are coming to pick Him up, and Jesus begins to say, and He says three times, My Father, if it is Your will, let this cup pass from Me. My Father, if it is Your will, let this cup pass from Me. My Father, if it is Your will, let this cup pass from Me. Yet... Not as I wish, but as you will for it to be done. See, he, he didn't have his own will. He gave that up, his independent authority. Here's the third thing he gave up. He gave up his attributes. He gave up his omnipresence, his omnipotence, and his omniscience. That means all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, every place that he was at. It was veiled in his humanity. He didn't exercise the full limit of it. But we know that he let some of it leak out occasionally. Remember when he saw Nathaniel under the tree? And he said, I could see you from a distance. I knew you before you even walked up here. That's God's omniscience leaking out. He's standing on the water. He calms the water and causes the seas to completely become still. That's God's omnipresent and omniscience and omnipotence leaking out. But he kept it veiled so he exerted it selectively. And yet, we understand that he didn't even know the exact time of his return. Remember that one? Come up with me up on the screen. Matthew 24, 36. Jesus speaking, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So he surrendered all of his knowledge, things that the Father knew he didn't necessarily know here on planet earth. 
Here's another one that he surrendered, his eternal riches. Look with me on the screen on this one, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. Here's the fifth one. The fifth one is this intimate face-to-face relationship with God the Father. In heaven, he's in relationship constantly with God the Father. And yet we're told while he's on the cross, because he was made sin, God had to turn his face away. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So even though it's the Father's will for him to come to earth and for him to carry out the mission, when Jesus is on the cross, he has to cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God turns his face away from Jesus in that moment when he's got the sin of the world, when he's got adultery on him and rape, and lying, and jealousy, and anger. God can't look upon that. And so Jesus loses the intimate face-to-face relationship with God. Those are the five ways that he emptied himself. And we come to this third step. We see it in Philippians 2 again in verse 7. It says, he took the form of a bondservant. So incarnation, the word incarnation literally means in the flesh. So God in the flesh. So Christmas is this reminder for me that Jesus is incredibly human and incredibly frail. He needs parents to teach him. He needs diapers. Get your mind around that. The God of the universe needed to have someone reach into the Gerber baby jar and say, open your mouth. Can you imagine that? He needed to be carried to Egypt so that Herod would not kill him and then carried back again. He needed his parents. He needed protection. That he became this human. But yet when the Magi came from the east to worship him, they worshiped a child. He wasn't born fully grown. He's a baby. And just in case you wondered, there were no halos around his head. That's something that the artist added. There's no great glory in the barn. He became a slave in the fullest sense. So the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, willingly became a bondservant. Bondservant is the word doulos. And doulos means the servant who owns nothing. Literally, Jesus didn't own a boat. He had to borrow a boat. He had to ride into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey He had to have a borrowed tomb to be buried in. He didn't own his own things. No land, no jewels, no business. He's a bondservant in the truest sense. And this mystery is so profound that the angels who saw him before he stepped onto the stage and knew who he was couldn't get their minds around it. And according to what we're told in Scripture, they still long to look into it. 1 Peter 1.12, it says this, The things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Because they knew Him as the King of glory. And they see Him as a child on earth. Here's this fourth step. Step four is from verse seven also. It says that he was born in the likeness of men. So we're continuing this downward spiral. We've got four of them down. The virgin birth. 
The, the, word, the word that's used here in the Greek language means that which has made something like something else in form. It, 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 it means he's not a copy. He's not a clone. He's exactly as you and I. He felt what we feel. He, he's not some representation, but not really human. He's completely human. He knows the problems of the fall. He knows all the limitations. Jesus became hungry. Jesus became thirsty. Jesus felt pain. Jesus laughed at Peter. Jesus cried. And here's the big one. God was tempted in the same way that you and I are tempted. Any temptation that you have ever known, He's been tempted that same way. Hebrews 4, it says this, but the one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In every single way that you've ever been tempted, he's been there. So here come the last steps. Verse 8 says this, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So step five is this one. He's found in appearance as a human. He's recognized by those who saw him as a man. The, the word that's used here, the Greek word is schema. And it literally means the outward shape or the form. So he's got the outward shape of a man, but he's still God on the inside. Look, look at this on the screen. John 6.42 says this, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? That's said by the people in Nazareth. They were confused. How could he possibly? They recognize him as a man. How could he say he's God? So this is amazing to me. The one who made the solar system is helping Joseph make cabinets in the carpenter shop. Is that not amazing? From trees he created, he's making cabinets. Get your mind around that. Step six, he humbled himself. And here's the profound descent. And we move from the form to the attitude. That's what step six is. The personal attitude, and it's most intense during his arrest and during his trial and during his crucifixion. Think about this church. He's mocked. He's accused falsely. He's slapped on the face. They curl up their fist and they beat him to a pulp. They rip his beard from his face. They begin spitting on him. Yet he's never defensive. He's never bitter. He's never demanding. He's never accusing. He refuses to assert all of his rights as God. Now, if ever, ever you wanted to see Jesus hit the easy button, it's in that moment. Because we're told according to Scripture, he could have called 12 legions of angels. How much restraint does that take? How much phroneo, the focus, have this attitude that is in you that was also in Christ Jesus? If ever he wanted to call 12 legions of angels, it's in that moment. But that would be totally contrary to God's plan. So what we're told next in step seven, he's obedient And from verse 8, it says he's literally obedient to the point of death. 
surrenders his life, that God would stop breathing. Put your mind around this one. God, according to Genesis 1, forms Adam of dust of the ground, and he leans over and he breathes into him the breath of life. That moment between breathing the breath of life and seeing the clay form of a man there and knowing that he was going to take that same form one day. So before the lungs are heaving with oxygen and before God breathes into him the breath of life, we have a clay form laying on the ground made of the dust of the earth. And the one who breathes the breath of life into man will one day exhale his last breath and say it's finished. The one who is life gives up his life. So Paul writes, obedient to the point of death, the ultimate humiliation. Why? Romans 5 tells us, verse 19, for as through one man's disobedience, meaning Adam, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, meaning Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Amen, church? Absolutely. So he chose death. Why? Because of his love for us. This is the amazing part. Not that this all hasn't been so far. The Father did not force death on Him. Even though He submitted to God the Father, it was the Father's will, but it was Jesus who submitted. See, if He hadn't had the choice, He couldn't have been obedient. And that says right there, He was obedient. If there wasn't the choice, there would have been no obedience to the point of death. So that's why Jesus said this in John 10, 18, no one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Here's the last step. Step number eight. It says even death on a cross. So the eighth step is a really big cliff. Death on a cross. See, he wasn't destined just for any kind of death. It wasn't just getting the head cut off or taking a bullet. It had to be torture the most cruel, excruciating, same shameful execution ever devised by man. I know you know a lot about the crucifixion. I won't go into the details. But he knew. He knew in the moment that he breathed the breath of life into Adam and the lungs filled with air. He knew that he was going to face the cross and take the crucifixion. So the idea of a crucified God is unimaginable inconceivable, almost preposterous, absolutely incredible if God had not declared it Himself. And God declared it Himself and said, this is what we know and believe to be true. So this Scripture is the monumental reality of Christmas. You want to know the backdrop to what's going on to Christmas morning? This passage Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11, reveals the depth of the descent. But you know what's coming next? It reveals the exaltation, the height of the exaltation. It's the absolute capstone. Verse 9 says, because of all these things, 
For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that, at the, at that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, even Jesus was made to be an object of the glory of God. We've talked about that over the last two weeks, and then tonight, we were objects of his wrath who became objects of his mercy for the purpose of becoming objects of his glory. Jesus never was an object of his wrath. He never was an object of his mercy, but he was clearly an object of the glory of God. It's profound. That passage is so hard to understand, yet so simple because it's the Christmas story. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> Is that not an amazing story? It's just incomprehensible, church. So he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the very core of what we know about this story. So let me take you full circle all the way back around to where we started. This is where we started, 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That's why Paul said what he said. The height of exaltation, the depth of the descent, the height of exaltation. The truth is, over the course of this weekend, there'll be people sitting in the seats where you're sitting who will still find themselves caught up in the chains of darkness, who will have never heard this story or never believed or understood this story, and they're living every day with a life sentence. And it is a very, very harsh punishment to live out that kind of a life sentence in complete darkness when God says, here's the real reason you should have Christmas spirit. So I'm going to challenge you tonight. I'm going to challenge you to be in prayer tonight for the people who are coming tomorrow. And if that happens to be you tonight, if you find yourself in that place where you're caught up in those chains of darkness and you've never really understood this until tonight, I'm here tonight to give you a recentering on why the Christmas story is told and the real purpose to remind you Jesus didn't come just so you can get gifts under the tree. He came to redeem you, to give you a brand new start. The Christmas you face next week can be one of joy and exaltation. I know a lot of people who are facing Christmas right now with a lack of joy and no hope and they're frustrated because they don't really understand what God offered us. So I'm going to pray for you right now. I'm going to pray that we would be bold in our prayer life over the next day, praying for people who are going to hear this on Christmas Eve, that they would understand that we are indeed, if we're separate from Christ, objects of His wrath. And that because of Jesus, we became objects of His mercy for the purpose of becoming objects of His glory. Would you pray with me about that? Let's pray together, church.
Father, in the best way we possibly can try to understand what King Jesus gave up, we've done it tonight. We can't grasp it, but we believe it, and we know it to be true. Father, we first come before you thanking you for the gift. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight as much as myself that we would remember there are many who will come in the doors of this church who have never heard this before. God, that your Holy Spirit would have free reign here and that you would bring conviction where you need to bring conviction and understanding. Father, that you would deal with us right where we're at, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. God, remind us who are believers in Christ tonight and tomorrow to be praying about those who will be coming to hear this for the first time. And Father, for any who might be here tonight who are living in the darkness that we've described, I pray, Father, that you would gently and tenderly remind them of salvation in Jesus Christ. It was for death that he came, but it was also for salvation, and it was for restoration to the throne. And God, we know that he's coming back again one day. We look forward to meeting him in the air. Father, thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you for making your word clear. We praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.